First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 uh, through 12. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we have told you beforehand, and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in, hol- in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your own hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. It was a very tense night in that fall 2016 Wednesday evening at the Major's household. There were a few Jubilee people who came over. Uh, My wife was borderline screaming. Uh, I was getting nauseous by what I was seeing. It was a very tense night. It was game seven of the World Series. Cubs versus the Indians. We had battled back three games to one versus the Indians. And to give you a little bit of historical context, the Cubs, Chicago Cubs, had not been in the World Series since 1945, and they had not won a World Series since 1908, which, to give you a little historical perspective, is pre-World War I. So, we were dubbed the lovable losers. So people love the Cubs because there's a station called WGN that was, a, that was a national cable network, and people from all over could turn in, tune in and watch the Cubs during the day at 1.20. Now in 2003, we were this close to getting to the World Series. We had a commanding lead in the eighth inning. We were, we were four outs away from finally getting to the World Series. Everyone in Chicago was about to erupt. And then a guy reached out into the field, got in the way, and we didn't get the out like we should. And after that, everything fell apart. We lost our lead and we didn't make it to the World Series. So that was 2003. Fast forward to 2016, 
We have a commanding lead. We, we had battled back three to one. We, we, we were up by four or three runs. It was the eighth inning, four outs away from winning the World Series. I was so excited. Our best reliever, Aroldis Chapman, came in. He could pitch over 100 miles per hour. And so everyone was thinking, this game is set. The Cubs are going to finally do it. And I'm alive to see it. To Dave's chagrin. <laughs> and then, Aroldis Chapman gives up a three-run home run. And the game is tied. And I start thinking to myself, I didn't believe in baseball curses before, but I think I really believe in that now. Everyone in the clubhouse, the whole team, all their heads were hanging low. It's as if we lost the game. All the players started to replay in their minds what happened in 2003. Even the players said, I think we do have a curse. And everyone felt like this game was over. But then something happened. God providentially <laughs> brought a rain delay. And so as the rain came, it was about 20 minutes, everyone in the clubhouse is, is hang, hanging their head low. And then Jason Hayward, our right fielder, said, everybody, in the weight room, won't take long. And then he got up and he started giving an urgent encouragement to his players. This is what he said. He said, I know some things may have happened tonight you don't like. We're the best team in baseball. And we're the best team in baseball for a reason. Now we're going to show it. We play like the score is nothing, nothing. We got to stay positive and fight for your brothers. Stick together, and we're going to win this game. And then everyone else started getting pumped up. You know, then other players were saying, let's keep grinding. Chappie, we're going to pick it up for you. This is only going to make the win that much sweeter. So when the Cubs came out of the clubhouse, out of that speech, their, he their heads were high, and they had command. We took the lead, and we won the World Series. All because a lot of people say, all because of that urgent encouragement given by Jason Hayward. Now that is exactly what Paul is doing for us this morning in, in 1 Thessalonians 4. He is giving us an urgent encouragement to keep battling for holiness. Now we all can sympathize with Feeling fatigued in our fight for holiness. Feeling like we put in so many battles and we keep stumbling. We just want to give up. And we start to hang our heads low. And that's what was happening with the Thessalonians. They had fought and they fought and they were getting worn out. And so Paul gives them here an urgent encouragement. It's all in that Greek word parakaleo, which means urgent encouragement. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you. Now you see Paul's apostle or his fatherly compassion and love. He could have just said, look, 
I'm an apostle. I have certain rights over you. I command you, be holy. Stop it. But no, he comes as a loving pastor and gives an urgent pastoral plea for their holiness. Now, that doesn't mean this wasn't an authoritative word. He says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. So this is coming from Jesus Christ. In verse 2, it says, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul was bringing this exhortation in the authority of Jesus. And that's a good reminder for us when you hear preaching to the degree that the preacher is staying faithful to the word of God. This word is not ultimately coming to you from Pastor Toph. This is ultimately given in the authority of Jesus Christ because it's his word that's being preached. So this urgent encouragement is for us, Jubilee, this morning, not just for those in Thessalonica. Now, I love, I love how Paul pastors because, again, we see it over and over. He affirms before he gives an exhortation. Do you see that there? He says, as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing. So he's coming into their life. He wants to encourage growth. But first, he's showing them that God is already at work. Just as you are doing. Some of us are tempted in parenting or whatever it is to just jump right to the exhortation. Without remembering that we need to also point out the evidence of God's grace in one another's life. Now, some of us are more tempted to only affirm, but in those areas where we see a need for growth, we don't want to give an exhortation. Well, Paul doesn't fall in either one of those ditches. He says, you're doing well, but keep battling. There's more that God wants to do in you for your holiness. So what is Paul's urgent encouragement to us this morning? In a nutshell, it's this. In light of Jesus' return, please God more and more through sexual, sexual holiness and love for one another. I'll say it again. This is the main point of the sermon. In light of Jesus' return, that's a theme throughout the whole book, and we'll see it in this text as well. Please God more and more through sexual holiness and love for one another. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll start working through this text. First thing he urges is sexual holiness. In verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, Lou already preached a little part of my sermon for me already in the welcome. It's all good. It's all right. What is God's will for our life? Our sanctification, our holiness, which is very freeing to me because a lot of times we get bogged down in God's specific calling for my life. Who should I marry? What job should I get? What type of ministry should I be involved in? But what God is saying here is that his moral call on our life, our holiness, is priority over our specific calling. So God doesn't really care what our address is if we're not pursuing him 
in holiness. That needs to be our priority. And the good news is, Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and all the wisdom that you need to discern God's will will be given. So prioritize holiness in your life. Now, why does Paul specifically apply holiness in the area of sexual immorality? He could have chosen a lot of things. Is this just kind of his hobby horse? He just gets worked up about sexual holiness? No, it's because he knew, like any good pastor, he knows the state of his flock, and he knew that this was a unique struggle and temptation for this local body of believers. Think about it. A lot of the people in this church were coming out of a pagan background, which meant when you would go worship a local deity, you might have intercourse with a prostitute, a cult prostitute, Public baths were connected to brothels in that day. So think about it being social, socially acceptable now to go to the YMCA. I'm going to take a dip in the pool, maybe go in the sauna, then I'll go home. It was just as normal in that day to go to a local bath, visit a prostitute, and go home. And the women would have said, oh, it's just men being men. No big deal. So sexual immorality was woven into the very culture, the very culture that many of them were being drawn out of. And I think like we've all experienced in our own culture, something so ingrained into a culture is hard to rid oneself of and remain sensitive to. When you have sexual immorality all around you, it's really hard to take it seriously long term. Some guys... And I, from Jubilee, went to go see the movie 1917 a couple weeks ago. I thought it was a great movie. Um, Beautiful cinematography. Great story. That's why we went, to see that movie. But, in all the previews, there was lust. There was sensuality. It was so hard to be in there because every preview that I wanted to watch, a new James Bond, sweet. And then it's full of immorality. And it just made me think it's so easy for us to become dull, to become okay with immorality in our lives. So I think the same specific focus that Paul had for the Thessalonians is needed for us today in this area. Listen to what Kevin DeYoung says. He says, if we could transport Christians from almost any other century to any of today's Christian countries in the West, he puts Christian in quotes, I believe what would surprise them most, besides our phenomenal affluence, is how at home Christians are with sexual impurity. We're at home with it. It doesn't bother us. Guys just struggle with it. It doesn't shock us. It doesn't upset us. It doesn't offend our consciences. In fact, unless it's really bad, sexual impurity seems normal. Just a way of life. And often downright entertaining. Brothers and sisters, we need to hear Paul's urgent call 
for us this morning to remain vigilant in this area of our life, which not, means not only avoiding things, but actively hating the evil behind it. Now, Paul gives us his exhortation, but he doesn't say, and be holy just because. I just wanted to say that. No, he gives us three different motivations in this text for why we should be holy in our sexuality. God does this throughout the Bible. He gives reasons and motivations to obey. It'd be easy for God to say, be sexually holy, I'm God, period. But he gives us all types of motivations in Scripture. Some of them we like, some of them we don't like. Some of them come in the form of a warning. Some of them come in the form of an encouragement. But God says we need both. We need both. So first, let's turn to verse 6. He issues a warning. He says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, meaning in, in sexual immorality, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So in Paul's mind, to issue a solemn warning was not antithetical to the gospel. It wasn't unloving. It's what the doctor ordered. It's the very thing they needed to hear. So avenger, the word avenger, simply means someone who settles accounts. And in this context, it means someone who settles accounts by carrying out God's wrath. So you think of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is a theme. At the return of Jesus, he will come in vengeance. It says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So throughout the Old Testament, we see that God is a God of vengeance. And the way we see it carried out in the New Testament is not in Jesus' first coming, but in his second coming. He will bring about the vengeance of God on all who do not obey. Now in, in verse 6 here, when it says the Lord is an avenger in all these things, it's Paul alluding to Psalm 93. So a lot of times the Apostle Paul has different Old Testament texts in his mind when he's giving us a New Testament exhortation. So the Old Testament is supposed to color our understanding of what the Apostles are saying in the New Testament. So I'll read the first couple of verses of Psalm 93, and as we hear this, it helps inform how we interpret what Paul's saying here. Psalm 93, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve, O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt 
they pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. So Paul's referencing that here. And one thing to notice is, God is not pouring out his vengeance on believers. He's pouring his vengeance out on unbelievers, on the proud, the wicked. From that, we can learn God isn't warning that believers will know the vengeance of God, but what he is warning is, if you profess to know Christ, and yet you give yourself to sexual immorality as a lifestyle, as your way of life, you will know the vengeance of God and prove that you are not a believer. That's what Paul's saying here. That's the warning he is giving. He's warning his people. Solemn warnings are one way God motivates his people away from unbelief. Sometimes we need warnings. He gives us another, another motivation in chapter 7. These are three motivations for sexual holiness. The next is, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So when God the Father called us, he set us apart for holy purposes. Now, I recently learned there's someone, there's a couple in this congregation, they're recently engaged, and this guy is like a total stud. Because what I hear is that he gave his fiancée a ring, but he didn't just give her a ring, he actually fashioned and molded the ring himself. And I thought, oh man, my wife picked her own ring out at Macy's. And this guy fashions his own ring and gives it to her. That is pretty cool. All the other husbands went down after he did that. Now think, think if this fiancé, let's just pretend she, she has a trailer. Just go with me on this. She has a truck and a trailer, and one of the links in the chain breaks, and she has to think of some other circular object to use to put the chain back together. And she's like, oh, I got this ring. This will work. And she puts that ring and links it to the trailer hitch, and then she uses that to pull the trailer. Now, would that be a good use of the ring? Is that what that ring is called to be when, the fiance, when this guy gave her this ring? No, he would be very offended, I think, if he saw the ring that he fashioned on the back of a trailer. Well, Paul is saying something similar here when he says, you were not called to sexual immorality. You were called to holiness. God has set you apart for holy purposes. Don't be like a wedding ring in a trailer hitch. God has called you to something higher. The third motivation he gives is essentially calling a spade a spade. Look at verse 8. He says, Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, the word in Greek for therefore could also be translated the end of the matter of this. It's kind of the culminating argument for what Paul's trying to say. He's, he's going to really lower the boom here and help us feel the gravity of what sexual immorality is and what it does to our relationship with God. It's so easy to kind of candy coat our sin and say, well, it's just a struggle. Now, I understand there are struggles in sin, and God gives mercy in that, but we, we don't want to candy coat what sin is 
And Paul doesn't do that here. He calls a spade a spade. He says, therefore, whoever disregards this command to be holy in their sexuality disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Disregards God. Think if Lou came to his wife and said, hey, honey, can you, can you get some coffee for me this morning? And he just got the hand. Would you, would you feel good about that, Lou? You'd feel disregarded, right? <laughs> to disregard means to reject, to set aside, to spurn, to despise. Brothers and sisters, sin communicates spurning, a despisal to God. We can't just say, well, I'm just sinning and it not have an impact in our walk with God. And not only do we disregard and spurn and despise God when we give ourselves to sin, we despise the God who gives us one of the most, or the most precious gift he can give, the Holy Spirit. Whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit. Spirit. God has given us the empowerment we need to put sexual immorality to death. He's given you his Holy Spirit. And when we give ourselves to sin, we're saying, I don't much appreciate that gift, and it doesn't really work. I'm going to, why don't you just take it back? God has given us his precious Holy Spirit. So, Look at each of these warnings. Each reason involves a different time period and person of the Trinity. Do you see that? Verse 6, we have Jesus. Verse 7, we have God the Father calling us. And in verse 8, we have the Holy Spirit. What Paul is saying here is sexual immorality is a working against each member of the Trinity in bringing about our salvation. Remember Ephesians 1, it's a Trinitarian salvation that God is bringing about in our life. We are resisting each member of the Trinity in different ways in them accomplishing our salvation. Let us run and flee knowing that God has given us his Holy Spirit. So what's Paul's urgent encouragement this morning? In light of Jesus' return, Please, God, more and more through sexual holiness and love for one another. Verse 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So, holiness is not only about saying no to things we shouldn't do. It's not a life of avoidance. If I just avoid sexual immorality, I'm good. No, that's one side of the whole coin. The other side is love for our brothers and sisters. So, we abstain from sexual holiness, not in and of itself, but that we might know God and love one another. That's why in verse 3 it says, Gentiles give themselves up in lust because they don't know God. 
So the ultimate motivation for sexual holiness is that we might know and enjoy God and fellowship with one another. Like Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. He also says that they are God taught to love. Do you see that there? You've been taught by God. What Paul is doing there is again affirming God's work in their life. It's a reference to the new covenant in Jeremiah that promises that one day God will so be at work in his people personally that we won't have to say, hey, know the Lord to one another because everyone in this new covenant will know God. And what Paul is saying is that in this era of salvation history, God is so personally at work in his people that we can be, we can be called those who are taught by God. Isn't that remarkable? That should be so encouraging to us this morning that in our fight to love, in our fight to put away sexual immorality, we are not doing it in our own strength. It's God at work in us because of his new covenant promises to teach us, to empower us, to enable us. And he also encourages them to pursue more love, as if to say, guess what, Thessalonica? God has more to do in your life. And he says that to us this morning, Jubilee. God has done a good work in you. We're just praising God this morning for what he did at the marriage retreat. Uh, the staff is consistently praying because it's so evident that God's spirit is at work in this body. And yet, from this text, we know God has even more to give us in growth and holiness. And we can come to him for that. Now again, like a good pastor, he takes a general concept, a general command to love, and now he's going to apply it specifically. So first he gave a general command, be holy. Now knowing you guys, you need specifically holiness in this area of sexual immorality. Now he's going to say, love one another. But here's an area where you really need to work on that. And this is why it's so important to be a part of a local church. Because you could listen to the best podcasts in the world with the best preachers in the world. But if you're not in community, you're not going to know what are those commands that I uniquely have to apply in a specific way. And that's what Paul is doing here. This is love applied practically. Verse 11 starts with the word and. It could also be translated by. So essentially, Paul is saying, this is the way I want you to love one another. Namely, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, this word aspire, look at that word, aspire, what does that mean? It means to make it your ambition. It should be an all-consuming drive and goal. Earnestly endeavor to do this. It's only used two other places in the New Testament. I'll read those verses. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has already been named, or not where Christ has already been named lest I build on someone else's foundation. Now, totally get why Paul would put ambition there. 
a global call to missions? Yes, give your life to that. There's a whole book written on that holy ambition. It's the same word. And it's talking about global missions, a very good book. 2 Corinthians 5 also talks about an ambition and uses the same word. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim or ambition or we aspire to please God. Again, makes total sense that Paul would use the strong word aspire when talking about pleasing God and everything, right? We've heard a lot of sermons about aspiring to preach the gospel where Christ isn't named, praise God. And we've heard a lot of sermons on making it our one ambition to please God in everything we do. But Paul says, aspire, give your life to, live quietly, and mind your own business. What? How many sermons have you heard on that? Can you imagine this? A holy ambition, minding your own business. <laughs> what is Paul getting at here? Make it your ambition to mind your own business and work with your hands. That sounds too normal, too ordinary. Endeavor earnestly to contentedly and responsibly fulfill your ordinary duties. What? Paul needs a copy of Radical by David Platt. He's going soft. He's buying into the American dream. It sounds like. What's going on here? A little context could help. So in Thessalonica, the Thessalonians knew Christ could come back at any moment. So some of them began to think it's not very spiritual then to do ordinary work. If Jesus is going to come back, it's all going to burn anyway. It doesn't really matter that I go to the quarry today. But what this did is caused them to quit their jobs, and then it created a vacuum of time so that they became idle. Because Jesus hadn't come back. So they just kept waiting. They were radical. They're doing the spiritual thing. But we all know that when we have too much time on our hands, we don't usually do holy things. So what they did is they became dependent on the wealthier Christians. They had to live out the wealthier Christians in the congregation because they were too busy being hyper-spiritual. So instead of a, such a radical move creating radical disciples of Jesus, it gave the flesh an opportunity to be lazy and stir up trouble in the church and in society. Hence he says to live quietly. And such foolishness was actually a hindrance to their witness. You see that in verse 12? so that you may walk properly before outsiders. Sometimes, in our effort to be so spiritual and do holy things, we end up just looking weird. And we're not actually helping the cause of Christ. So what I think what we have here is a reminder that we need a mature, biblically balanced understanding of what obedience is in the gospel. We live in a get-radical, get-crazy Christianity that's increasingly popular with us younger evangelicals. 
where it's all about being radical, radical, radical. I don't care what you're doing, just so it's radical. And it's become its own legalism, where Christians who don't have an outwardly radical-looking radical life, they're just, might be Christians, they're, they look too ordinary. Paul is pushing against that here. And guess what? The Call to Radical is a good one. David Platt's book on radical is a wonderful book. But it just reminds us we need to have a mature, biblically informed, balanced understanding of what Scripture teaches. Otherwise, we just assume it's all about being radical. That's it. Now, as you heard at the marriage retreat, if you were there, I was the king of doing this, and I still am the king of sometimes being spiritual, but it's actually not spiritual at all. Like, when I got married, I thought, I got to do my devotions two hours a day. And my wife just wanted to have breakfast together. And I thought, honey, honey, hell and heaven are real. And you want to have breakfast together. And so she would come in my room when I'm communing with God, and I would say, what do you want? <laughs> Not a very holy response. Scripture teaches us that normal, ordinary work done as a fruit of the Spirit is radically spiritual and pleasing to God. So if you work at Target and you're going into work tomorrow, don't think that God doesn't give a rip about what you do unless you evangelize. That's just not true. In fact, one of the best ways to share Christ in that environment is to be the best worker at Target that you can be, and they'll see light in you. Trying to live radically for the gospel but without an accompanying growth in normal maturity and adulthood is unspiritual, unloving, and creates more harm than good. Now, this is where the older can help the younger. Zeal without knowledge is good. It's very good to be young and be zealous and radical, but it has to be accompanied by the wisdom that comes from years to keep it in check. So when I was married to my wife early on, part of the problem was I didn't think that financially providing for my family was a spiritual thing. God will provide. So... I was, doing, I was doing seminary part-time and kind of working part-time just so I had plenty of margin to commune with God and evangelize. And meanwhile, my wife was like, well, we do have bills. And I'm thinking, come on, trust God with that. And what I needed was a rebuke. I went to go see a pastor, and he looked at me and he said, Toph, what are you doing? I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I needed that rebuke. I remember um, I had some roommates, and we were all trying to live radically for the gospel. And we thought we'd come up with a, a, a chart of different chores that we'd each do. But one of the guys said, guys, why are we talking about this? We need to be out witnessing right now. We don't need a chore list. And it was the nastiest place to live in the world. <laughs> And if we would have brought an unbeliever over, they would have not been impressed and been like, oh, glory to Jesus. 
So we must be careful not to judge others as unspiritual because radical obedience in their life might look different. Or less radically, less radical at least externally. Or in the same area you are radical in. True radical Christianity will sprout out of normal everyday obedience. Which can be radical in itself if done with the power of the Spirit. So... I'm not saying that the call to discipleship isn't radical. Jesus does say, hate your mother, father, brother for the sake of the gospel. That's very true. But we just have to keep it biblically balanced and understand that changing diapers and going to work in what feels like a normal job, if done in the power of the Holy Spirit, God will use for cosmic purposes. So don't think that what you're doing is unspiritual because it doesn't fit in one of the radical books. I think that's what Paul would say. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He doesn't say, so whether you eat or drink, wait, why are you eating and drinking in the first place? He says, no, even in the small things, you give glory to God. Sometimes it's easier to do things that feel exciting and radical because they make us feel significant. When really the most radically loving thing in God's eyes is doing the dishes. We just need to keep that balance. Again, please read books like this. Please read Radical. Very good. We need that call. But we need it balanced with biblical truth. So what's Paul's encouragement, urgent encouragement? In light of Jesus' return, please God more and more through sexual holiness and love for one another. And that might look more practical than you think. Or it may look more radical than you think. Paul says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. So remember, our main call is the call to holiness. And I think as we do that as a body and lean in, we'll have wisdom to know if God is calling me to be a missionary in Azerbaijan or to stay here. Some people are laughing because Azerbaijan, there's a whole story behind it with my wife and I. Anyway, it's for another day. So brothers and sisters, in light of Jesus' return, please God more and more through sexual holiness and love for one another. Let's pray. Father, we want to hear your urgent call. We want to be obedient in all things. Would you give us wisdom as a body to know what that looks in each individual life? And yet, not, let us not get hung up there, but remember our main call is holiness in communion with you. We pray this in Jesus' name.